0: You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Aaron, you sound good today. Well, I was uh, I was actually listening to podcasts preparing for this podcast. Was, this is a lot of meta levels to this episode. I want to hear who's on the show, but uh, but first, I feel like we should tell the story from this week. Oh my goodness! Okay, I, wait, Evan, do you know about this? I have it? no, I I have honestly no idea what you're talking about. Okay, I apologize for not uh, keeping you abreast. I, I generally uh, I know that you're you aren't part of the cybersecurity apparatus of the long form <laughs> podcast, despite your noted expertise as uh, someone who's taken down an international supervillain. Did I, we get hacked? We well. Let's say that that's an open question that perhaps you can investigate. No. I will say, so we woke up, um, I don't remember, it was some morning a few days ago. You may have noticed if you went to longform.org that the site was down. And that actually does not happen very often. I would say it happens like every couple years And usually it's because number one cause is because we didn't pay the bill for something that requires the website to stay up. That was how it went down on the day of Max's wedding with the entire IT infrastructure in a small village in Italy. But this time we looked and there was no obvious um, unpaid bill, um, which left it a mystery. And at that point, literally, I was talking to Max about it. uh, I got a phone call. I'm gonna play this for you, Evan. Uh, who, who do you work for?
1: We work for Longform.
0: You work for Longform. And um, what what is it that you've been observing? Uh, we just got a notification. Someone keeps trying to change your password today. Yeah. Um, the site is down. That, right That now. was not me. Is this your email address editors, dot, uh, editors at longform That's That's my. Is email address? That is my email address. Okay, and you not You didn't try to change your password. Who do you work for? We work for Longform. Uh huh. What's your company called? Longform. Ah. Do you work for DreamHost? Okay, so at that point, they hung up on me because I guess I had asked one too many questions. There was about a minute before that. Uh, But the basic gist of it was they claimed that they were calling me from Longform. (laughs) We work for Longform. The company that provides my email service. And mysteriously, they asked me to change my password. Now, okay, so this, this hap- security practice. This happens while the site is down. And I was like, okay, we're getting, we're getting set up here in some way. Uh, not that that stopped me from trying to call them back several times to see if I could talk to them more, but they refused to pick up on my callbacks. So shortly thereafter, our um, long time, shouts to him, technical director. So we, what's Will's title? Chief technical officer. Chief technical officer woke up and rebooted the website and immediately went back online. And went like, Will, we we got hacked. And he was like, I don't think so. This, like, small thing was gone. It was totally on our end. So in conclusion, and uh, if anyone wants this, if the, the good people at Reply All are listening, we are looking for another free investigation from you. Here's what I think it is, is they scan the Internet looking for sites that are down. And then... Put some sort of a call through to the contact phone number and act like they have some sort of information that you're being hacked. And then if you buy into it at some point, there's some sort of a credit card ask. That's the theory. The real end result here is that I have, like, uh, my favorite ringtone of all time, which is that anytime Aaron calls me, it just goes, we work for long form. <laughs> I like how I spent, like, three hours working on an elaborate scam scenario, and Max has just been saying, we work for long form every time I talk to him. <laughs> it's it's the conclusion of the story um okay so uh kind of an appropriate guest you have on this week Aaron. it is that i uh, there. there's a great synergy here um i talked to uh kevin kelly who has been uh a part of and writing about uh the cyberspace for as long as it's existed um he worked originally for the Whole Earth Catalog. Well, actually, he even did things before that, but you may have known the Whole Earth Catalog. Then he was, I believe, the first editor of Wired, or one of the founding editors of Wired, was there a long time. He's written a bunch of books about the future. Um, it's really like, they, I can't fit it all into this introduction. This, this goes lots of places, but uh, he was kind enough to host me at uh, his lovely home, Uh, which has more books in it. It has like if we had been doing uh, the long-form podcast since like 1967 and kept every book that was sent us, that's what it's like going to uh, Kevin Kelly's house. I just want to add to this one, uh, my own Kevin Kelly factoid, which is I was an intern at Wired 20 years ago, slightly more than 21 years ago, sitting at my little intern desk. No one knew who I was. And Kevin Kelly was extremely nice to me, Came by, introduced himself. Was always very nice to me, which was he was like a legend at Wired Magazine at that time, and you never forget that when like a person just is kind to you when you're when you're nothing. Kindness, pass it on, Evan Ratliff. There you go. Usually the lessons come at the end of the show. <laughs> This show is uh, not brought to you by the uh, IT department of Longform, but is in fact brought to you by Mailchimp. They make it easy to send a newsletter. You know what doesn't go down an email newsletter? Uh, you can't. Uh, you can't knock it offline and uh, make strange extortion calls. In fact, I don't think you even have to list your phone number, which is another nice thing. It's nice and detached from you, but still very useful. If you're ever having trouble with your newsletter, they've got incredible customer support. You don't have to wait for someone just it's to call true. you and say they work for your company. It's true. This would have never happened with Mailchimp, what happened to us. (laughs) We work for long. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much uh, to Mailchimp. And now here's Aaron with Kevin Kelly. Welcome, Kevin Kelly. It's a delight to um, see you again, Aaron. You're a hard person to know where to start with, but I think the through line, when I was just reading your biography... Th- first of all, thank you for putting your own biography on your website. It's extremely <laughs> convenient. If all future podcast guests it's, could do that, that would save me a lot of time. Um, when did you first publish? Wh- when did mm. publishing your own material enter yeah, into your life? Yeah, yeah. So um,
1: in high school, I did a little newsletter. We had a, a band... That didn't play music. We liked the idea of being a band and having T-shirts, but none of us were musicians, so we had the band without the music. I think that's called a gang now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we were doing good stuff. We were doing community projects and things like that. Um, going back, to I had a little newsletter that I went that I made. So, so that was like my first like publishing thing. Mm-hmm. But um, I didn't do much until I started to accumulate a huge number of photographs from my alternative to college, which was going to Asia to travel to photograph. And I came back and decided that I wanted to do something with this. I wanted to contribute to the one magazine that I loved, which was the Coevolution Quarterly, Holworth catalog. And I started to write for them. And and I think the first thing I published was probably a review of something. And I think it was probably a travel book that was published in the Whole Earth Catalog. And I then got the idea that maybe I should write longer stuff. So I went to the library. I got a a how to write a magazine article book. (laughs) And I was a big believer in how to do books and now had to do tutorials on YouTube. And so I f- went through it, and I followed the instructions about how to write a magazine
0: article, and I submitted, I wrote a magazine article for Whole Earth. Do you remember any of the advice and the how to write a magazine article? You know,
1: um, the, the one thing that I have spent many years on the other side of that as an editor getting submissions, and, and the one thing that was really most helpful was that you really wanted to know the publication that you were aiming for the the thing that I kind of understood, and I think I got from this piece, was that, in fact, they, they, the magazines, are in desperate need for material that's just right for them. And the problem is they see a lot of material that's just, like, utterly not ever going to make it. It's just not appropriate. It's not maybe what they even talk about. It's just like, have you ever read the magazine that you're submitting to? And... um But if you can kind of figure out what it is that that magazine does, what it's looking for, what the reason why they've run the articles they have, then kind of writing it becomes a lot easier. I mean, it's just, it's a type of framing and
0: thinking rather than the wordsmithing. So you were photographing all over Asia for a Mm decade-ish. When you began that project, did it have an editorial component? Were you thinking about how people were going to look at it, how you were going to put it together? You know, that's a, a really good
1: question. And I think the answer is yes. So I was a magazine junkie as a kid. And in part, that was because my dad worked for Time Life, Time Inc. He was not in the editorial. He was in something we would now call IT. But he brought home Every Monday, he brought home all the Time Empires magazines, which was Time, Life, Fortune, Sports Illustrated, later on Money, People. I'd get those every Monday. And I was like, I just loved magazines. And, and I read Time magazine religiously. Even when I was traveling, I, it was very expensive to find, but I would always spend money to buy a Time magazine. It was the only news I was getting. Um, so when I was photographing, I did have in my mind either a book or that I could become good enough to have a magazine article. I was just a kid with a camera who was reading photo books about how to do this. And I was just trying to get better at it, thinking that I could do this for a job. But as the more I did it, and I would occasionally, come across other photographers in the world on assignment, I became less interested in doing it as a job, because I realized that they had very little freedom. That They were on assignment, they were focused on something, they had to come and get it. And the more I saw that, the less interested I became in having it as a job, and the more interested I became in just kind of documenting it and hoping that I would do a book of something later on. So, so the short answer for this long story is that yes, I had in mind that I was going to do stuff with it in a kind of editorial capacity of a book or a magazine from the very beginning.
0: Like when you say that your goal was to document, documenting Asia as a pretty broad task, Um, you know, as a a college dropout um, taking on the entire continent. um, How did you think about that?
1: Yeah. It didn't begin that way. I, I, I'd never been out of New England we never took vacations. I, I mean, I was, I never had Chinese food. I never used chopsticks. And so I set out when I first went to um, Japan and Taiwan. I didn't have any idea or plan to go beyond those countries. And so um, that idea of kind of like going on came only much later. It was actually on that first trip that I met two Swiss guys who were traveling around the world which I didn't know you could do. I mean, I literally had no idea. I was there. I went to Japan because I had a family friend of a friend who had someone there that I first met and I went to Taiwan because my high school, best friend from high school was studying Chinese in Taiwan. So, I had kind of like invitations and these two Swiss guys were coming through and they were just coming from Indonesia, India and stuff. They were talking about all these countries and they should say, you should go down to the Philippines. It's just an hour flight away. It's like, You can do that? I don't know anybody there. (laughs) You don't need to. You just go. You can go to India. You can? I literally had never realized that there was this whole other world available. And so based on these guys' advice, I actually bought a ticket to the Philippines, and I literally on the plane to Manila, and I had not an ounce of information about where to go, what to do. And so um, that kind of opened up this idea that there was a larger world. So the idea of kind of documenting Asia was something that came as I went along. It was something that almost was done in retrospect. I didn't intend to do that. I just wanted to see what I was seeing, and then, oh, there's another country right next door. Oh, that's amazing. There's something over the hill. That's even more amazing. And so at some point... I was really getting very ambitious of trying to see more of it. And it's closer to like an addiction, a completist thing if someone who started collecting things and then decides that they have to have everything. So, I think the idea
0: of the complete Asia came pretty late in the process. So, you came back to the United States. Several times. Several times, eventually permanently.
1: Yep. I came back in partly because I had this religious conversion experience in Jerusalem I came back to the States, and then I decided that I had to live as if I was going to die in six months. That was based on the religious conversion? Yes. Mm-hmm. That was, I was like, okay, what do I do now? Well, the answer is, is you're, you're going to die in six months. You have to live those six months. And so um, my answer to that was surprising to me, um, which was I wanted to visit my family, see my brothers and sisters. which. I hadn't spent much time as adults, and my solution to that, because I had no money, was I was going to ride my bicycle across the U.S. Riding f- to visit my brothers who were kind of and my sisters who were kind of spread across the country. So I bought a bicycle and rode from San Francisco to New York the long way, going up to Idaho, down to Arkansas and stuff. So um,
0: there's what, something what, funny about. Uh, I only have six months to live, so I'll be traveling yeah, by yeah. bicycle.
1: Right. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I was kind of riding to this, I was going to ride home to to die. Um, and of course, I I didn't die. I had a rebirth, so to speak, which was, I guess, the whole point of it. And um, and then I decided, what am I going to do now? So I decided, like, that maybe I should be, a, that, that I give. A, I was a science nerd in high school, in science and math. And I decided, well, maybe I should give science a try. So I, I got a, I had a friend who, he was running a lab in the University of Georgia. So he invited me down to work in the lab. And um, I was there to, he wanted to make a film about digestion, about a micro photography film about how digestion actually works at the physical level and photograph that. My background in photography was interesting to him. So that's what I set up doing. And I was working in this lab and I became much more interested in how science was working, how the people in the lab got their information, how a science lab is actually run, what scientists actually were doing. And the informational side of it became really interesting to me. And so I actually um, started to research scientific information flows and stuff. And the second article that I decided to write for this magazine, The Light, was called Information as a Communicable Disease. And so I became really interested in kind of the meta level of science. So I I did some research on what the scientists were using to keep up with things, how they would scan all this information, how they would find it. And there was this thing called the citation indexing, by uh, this librarian in philadelphia whom i actually went to eventually to visit his name was eugene garfield and he invented this thing called citation indexing which was the foundation of PageRank mm. for google
0: i hadn't thought about how all these things are connected right, right. i my father was a um, genetics researcher right and uh an epidemiologist and my summer job when i was like 13 was i would type up he would xerox out of medical journals and then i used i don't know what the software was but it was some sort of primitive like look up in my index and then i would file them in his filing cabinets and this was like a a very big deal to yeah yeah like um he viewed these five or six file cabinets yes. as like his prized possession. Yes, yes, yes. Like well, one time the basement yes. floods and he was, you know, out yeah, there yeah, like no, carrying no, them filing up.
1: Filing cabinets. That's, that's what they, and they had these Xerox, they called preprints. There was a whole system. And the whole system was you sent a postcard to the researcher asking for their preprint and they would mail back to you a Xerox copy of this article and you would put it in and it was like gold because – That was the only way you could get these articles. You couldn't subscribe to all these magazines. So everybody would have their own private filing cabinet with all
0: these articles that they'd been collecting well, we built, now I'm thinking about, this is like the first time I've thought about this since the mid-90s, but they would come with keywords yeah, on the top. Right. And then I would enter those in the system. So there was actually like a topic-based search right, index right, right. that we were creating. We were creating our own like your little own, Google.
1: Exactly, your own
0: one, because there wasn't any other alternative. Yeah. And and there, the interesting part to me was there was no sharing. I was, like... It was never like his research partners right. was like, here's our database. Right. Like, right. let us send it over. No. And I don't think I ever shared it. This was hundreds of hours of right. manual labor right. for one researcher. Right. You, people didn't share that. No. And those filing cabinets were very, very valuable.
1: But how did, how did they get in there and how did they find them? So they had things like current contents, which was this ingenious thing, but the same guy did the citation index, which was the table of contents of all the journals reproduced into a little weekly pamphlet. So you could just see all the headlines, all the contents of all the journals. And again, without a Google, without other ways, this was how you could scan the entire literature to see what, and if there was something there, then you would highlight that. You would find out who the author was by going to the library, and then you would send them a postcard saying, send me your
0: article. It's almost an inverse... Um, version of publishing, even to this day, I think these medical journals are still very, like they're thousands of dollars a year to subscribe to some of them. And you pay to publish (laughs) instead of getting paid to publish. uh, Publishing generally now is completely ephemeral and you throw a magazine in the trash. People keep these Zero, some of these Xeroxes were like four or five Xeroxes deep. We were starting <laughs> to lose the text from right. over Xerox. Right, right, right. Um, and it seems like very resilient, the way this is organized, because no one wants to give up their filing cabinet and their personal system.
1: Right. By the way, for anybody out there, there's a great hack, I guess hack or, or call, recommendo, it's called, uh, that I've wanted for many, many years, which is getting access to scientific journals. Because they're all behind deep paywalls, and in fact, for many many years, even if you were willing to pay for a particular article, you couldn't get it unless you kind of were a subscriber to the entire journal for life or something.
0: The, some like I remember, my father's lab was paying fifty thousand dollars a year in magas- in subscriptions yeah, right, to right, scientific right, right. journals. Yeah.
1: So there is a <laughs> there is a pirate website in Kazakhstan called Sci-Hub, S-C-I-H-U-B. That is the most magnificent treasure in the world because you can put in a URL or you get the URL for the article, you put that in, and it will give you the actual article that's behind the paywall. So uh, I use it all the time.
0: At this point... Were you starting to think I want to publish things like my own magazine? Yeah, yeah. So, um, because I like I don't even know at, at this juncture in history what that would mean. Other right, than exactly. Going, right. going uh, this is even pre Kinkos. I don't think there's right. even the Xerox. Machine so, so, so yet.
1: the only you know again I was kind of a anti-establishment hippie guy. The only place I really ever wanted to work, the only magazine that I really respected, was this magazine published by Stuart Brand and the whole earth catalog fame somehow when i saw the whole earth catalog in 69 70 it was instant love at first sight it was like this he's talking to me this is for me i am so this this is what i want i, I read it from
0: cover to cover every time it came i almost had it memorized for people who are listening who've never seen a whole yeah. earth catalog describe describe like one gatefold of, right, of a, of a right. whole earth catalog so
1: so it was an oversized publication printed on the cheapest newsprint in black and white. And so the the genesis came in California when Stuart Brand was interested in alternative things. And he was visiting communes and noticed that they were kind of reinventing civilization. They were digging wells. They were trying to grow their own food. They were starting their own schools. And he would see them kind of like doing things in a way that they were like ignorant of like, did you know that there's a tool that would, or there's a better kerosene light called the Aladdin that's like 10 times brighter than your normal kerosene light. It uses the same amount of fuel. You should use that. Or if you're digging a well, there's this tool that you should know about. So he had this idea of having a truck full of all these cool gadgets, and he would drive around New Mexico and Nevada and all the, where all the communes were, and he would sell them these great tools, access to tools. And he had a little catalog that he made of the tools to try to sell it. And it turned out he couldn't sell any of this stuff in the truck, but everybody wanted his catalog. Hmm. The catalog was more interesting than some of the tools because he was writing about it. He, w- he would have a little annotation. So he decided wisely to drop the truck, because it was originally called the Holworth Truck Store, to drop the stuff truck and just focus on the catalog, which doubled kind of as like a newsletter, and he'd have news about what was happening and what was going on. And The
0: area's first pivot.
1: Right. And so the second thing that Stuart, the genius, is that he realized that he couldn't keep up. So almost after the first issue, the reviews of the tools and suggestions of the tools came from the community. It's what we would now call user-generated content. So very, very quickly, people were submitting and reviewing things, saying, that's not the best thing for the digging. Well, this is the best one, and here's why. And he'd run their review. And he'd pay them 10 bucks or something for that and give them credit. And it published very, very fast with almost no editing. It was kind of what I, I later came to call binary editing. You ran it or you didn't. And so um, it was very idiosyncratic. It had a lot of voice. he keep the way people spelt things. And then he would sometimes run longer rants about people, which, if you read them right now, you would totally recognize them as blog posts. Yeah. Which is, again, the genius. So he eventually made this quarterly publication called Coevolution Quarterly. It came out every three months on the solstice, the equinox. And it was all almost wholly written by the people reading it. Anyway, the point was is that this catalog was oversized. It listed how to do things yourself, books on how to build your own home, how to start your own school, how to do medical self-care. And before the internet was, came along, it was almost the only place you could find these obscure publications or sources that would tell you how to do
0: anything. But that idea of how to – there's a flip side to that idea of how to, which is there's a certain amount of people who actually want to have a commune and actually want to dig their own well. And then I would think that there's a larger pool of people to whom the whole Earth Catalog – and I remember um, flipping through it as a kid. My dad had all of them. Um, It would be the thing that planted in your mind that – you could start yes. a commune, or that you could be this other kind of person. This idea, is sort of, of aspirational knowledge. Absolutely. So,
1: the short story I will kind of is: I actually, the only place I ever wanted to work was the Horace Catalog. and I thought it was very unlikely that I would ever. But in fact, when I came back and started writing, I pushed my stories to them, um, and they started publishing me. And then, when the internet—excuse me—when the online world started. I got invited to write about it and then I got to join. Um, and I was hired by Stuart Online. And um, so later on, so, so the Horth Catalog, after the web came, the Horth Catalog ceased to exist because the web was better. It was doing everything the Horth Catalog did better. But I continued the idea of the tool part with a site called Cool Tools. And then I'd publish a kind of a modern version of the Whole Earth Catalog. Again, this oversized book, big page, that had hundreds and hundreds of tools, really good tools, reviewed by people who were actually used them and loved them and could talk about them. And I published it, and it was called Cool Tools. And the subtitle of that is A Catalog of Possibilities. Mm. Because that is what the Whole Earth Catalog was, as you said. Not only was it a tool that showed you how to find things, but it made clear that there were all these possibilities. It kind of opened up the world saying, oh my gosh, I mean, I could convert my a van into a home and then live in that. I didn't know it. Oh, wow. And even if I never do that, that possibility alone is liberating. And again, sometimes um, we always would say, you don't have to buy all these tools in this catalog. This is not just about consumerism, this is about knowing that these possibilities exist. And also, sometimes they will provoke some other idea, like a tool that can um, cut through glass. You would say, well, oh, if I had that tool, then I could do this. And even if I don't have that tool, just I'm now thinking about glass in a different way. And so you're absolutely right that this was not just aspirational in the sense of like giving you hope, it was aspirational in the sense that it could open up whole new ways of thinking about the world that you didn't before
0: you knew that tool existed. So when things made that jump from physical goods and tools right. to some of the same how-to, the right. the aspiration to knowledge, right, right, right. but that all became digital. It became yeah, the internet. Yeah, yeah. How did that change the sort of editorial perspective in writing about it it? it? it was huge
1: change because we almost didn't survive. When the personal computer was coming up, we had a very strong interest in it, and we could see that it was a new kind of tool. It required a whole different kind of way of thinking and level of expertise. But um, in the very early days when the first personal computers came along, it was a total mess. Things were changing very fast. Nobody really knew what worked. You would get software in a baggie with a floppy disk. who knew if it really worked and so there was a feeling like, well, if we ever needed the Whole Earth Catalog, this was the time for people to review it and There was nobody reviewing software at all. I mean, literally, so we actually started something called the Whole Earth Software Catalog, and the problem with it was Stewart got this huge advance, he got a million dollar advance. From Random House to produce it, and he had the really bad idea of producing a magazine in full color. He, he he had this idea that it had to be in color and stuff. So we had we had we had a disconnection, and the fact that we were now talking about computers pissed off about half of our subscribers who were organic farmers and stuff who really had a total allergy to this computer stuff. They felt they just completely distrusted it. It was totally antithetical to the whole Earth lifestyle. And so we, we made a separate magazine that failed, and I had the unenviable job of trying to combine them.
0: When when you said, hey, let's all go over that bridge to the computer land and the internet land, everyone was like, no, absolutely not. Did that shake your own faith at all? No, I, I, I think you know, again, I'm telling a
1: story out of order, but, but very early on, the whole genesis of doing the catalog and our own conviction about this came from early years of living online. So in the early 80s, in 81 or two, we got involved with this experimental online system called the Eyes Network, run by the New Jersey Institute of Technology, and it was like the first multi-threaded, multi-user forum Like a bulletin board that was jacked up, you could have many people together, on at once, and and then later we started the well in eighty five, but for those four years of living online, that's what convinced us. So, and we were living that; we were daily experiencing the highs and the lows of what happens when you augment and amplify this communication sphere. So. We had the confidence that no, that they just don't see. They're not online. They just don't see what this is about. They haven't really experienced it. And and our job is to sort of to show them
0: really what this is about. As an editor or a publisher, right. I guess, at this point, when you had this experience where you're like, I've had this experience over these right, right. four or five years that maybe a thousand, ten thousand right, people right, in the right. world have had at this point. And you wanted to communicate that to right, people, right, right. this thing that was almost unimaginable. Right. Um, as someone who has this magazine-making impulse, how do you make a sure. magazine of the unknown? Well, well,
1: one of the things that we did very early is we actually made our online, own online world with The Well. And so part of what we started to do was talk about The Well and get people to come onto The Well experience it themselves. And that's later on when I encountered VR, that was the first thing I wanted to do was, um, this is you know, virtual reality, you put the headset on, was in 89 or so. Was I wanted everybody to experience this because what was happening was people were talking about VR and what it was who never tried it. They were already kind of like expert on, oh, this is really terrible, this is cutting off people from reality and stuff. And I'm saying, here, I'm going to organize all the existing VR implementations anywhere in the country, and we're going to bring them all together. And for 24 hours, everybody who comes and buys a ticket will be able to try it out themselves. And then you can talk about it. So that's what we did with the well. It's like, we're g- we can talk about it, but even better than talking about it, let's have you experience it and we'll invent what this is to be. I mean, part of the thing is, is that we didn't even know what it's going to be. But it's like, let us together make this thing and so um you know wired later on was a little bit the same idea which is we were both going to report on it and we we're also going to invent it at the same time you know we did wired digital we invented the click-through ad banner and stuff and so there was this very much a part of wanting to not just report on things but to actually to
0: make the things happen when you were starting up. Um- with that and then later Wired. Mm. um, You described the role of an editor. An editor is actually very hungry for people to make the thing that they need. How did you describe the thing you needed Mm. out of thin air? And how did you find the people who could do it? Because as you were describing, it's actually a pretty limited pool of people who had the
1: experiences. So, so, So,
0: you know, in technology, there was a tendency in the
1: kind of mainstream presses to, we felt anyway, for people to talk down to the reader. And one of the things I liked about the Holworth catalog was it was written by readers. So it talked up to people. It was insider language. It was people talking about other to other people who they knew were very intelligent but just not in, as informed. And they were going to convey this in a very real way without diminishing their intelligence. And we wanted to do that in Wired. So Here's what I would tell writers, and this was Lewis's terminology, which was, look, the audience that you're writing to is not that 11th grade audience or your grandmother that USA Today or Time Magazine is going to tell you to write to. You are writing to me. I am your audience. I am totally bored by most of what I've read. You have to amaze me. And it's me. Don't write to anybody else. I know a lot. So talk to me directly and amaze me with something. And I think that really helped elevate it. I don't think it, it you know it didn't widen the, the, the pool of people, but it certainly energized people because a lot of writers love that assignment because they were gonna have to kind of up their game. I don't want you to explain DNA to me. I know what DNA is. Don't talk about what a modem is or not. You know, it's just no,
0: amaze me. Tell me something amazing. Well, this is an issue. Um, people who listen to this show know I have an unhealthy obsession with Bitcoin, right? And Bitcoin is maybe now in the state that uh, computers were when you started yeah, wired, yeah. where you have to think: Do I start this with Bitcoin's a digital <laughs> currency or not? <laughs> yeah. You know, no. um, you you could literally start there, or you could start with right. the most d- deep uh, right, right. sharding cryptographic yeah, proof. Yeah. Did you ever? did you ever worry that you were going over those readers' heads or were, were there no. business voices in the room that wanted? No, 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 no.
1: Actually, in, in fact, we had some proof from readers that they, so, sometimes new readers would pick up the magazine and they were kind of like say, "What, what, 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 what are you talking about? But they liked that because it was insider. They felt like they were getting inside. So, again... It was me. I had a very simple rule, which was, if I'm reading it and I don't understand, you have to explain it. If you're telling me something I already have explained, forget about it. Yeah. I am the reader that you're talking to. And so people, other readers who weren't, you know, I'm not that technical. I'm technical enough. And so I'm a pretty good representation of the reader in some ways. It's the reader that we wanted. And that was one of the things I learned from Whole Earth Kellogg. We didn't have a big subscription base, it was 30 or 40,000 people. But we like to say it was the right 30 or 40,000 people. It was an incredibly selective, great audience. And that's sort of this idea of like, Choosing your customers, choosing your audience. We want an audience that we don't have to explain
0: everything to. That's the people that we want. Do you think, in terms of building communities, like looking at Holler catalogs a community, the Wells a community, Wired. Wired readers are community. Yeah. Is there like a maximum size where yeah. the bubble bursts and it doesn't feel like the right thirty to forty thousand people? I think for most of the time,
1: in terms of communities, they certainly change. They're not the same. But there is, I, I believe in the Jeffrey West's idea that there's an exponential benefit of size. And from the very early days of the well, there was always people complaining that it was getting too big. And I'm saying, no, no, this can get a lot bigger. And I would say the same thing about the internet now. The bigger it is, the better it gets. Can the internet get too big? I don't think so. It will change, but I think that the benefits of that outweigh it. And you can always have subgroups and fences and little things. But So, communities. Well, there are certainly some communities that want to be small. And there's certainly um, some interests that are not going to ever be popular and they will remain so. But... Um, But you want to have – I think communities are kind of this nested hierarchy where you have communities within communities, larger communities within larger communities, in the way that you have neighborhoods inside of sections and city and a nation and a planet. And I think that's perfectly reasonable that, you know, you want to have some things that are kept local and remain so, and then at the same time what we don't have yet, which we need more of is planetary – community at some level. And, um, so, so I see communities as not singular, but these nested concentric circles, so to speak, overlapping ecosystems that require many levels to really sustain themselves over time.
0: What do you think the role of, uh, what used to be called a magazine and yeah. we struggle to figure out what it's called now is in those communities of various sizes. I mean, yeah, yeah. the small ones can no longer afford to have their own publishing w- wings. And the larger the community gets, the less it resembles what you just described of yeah. um, right for the person who already knows about this. I I think the economics have never been in favor
1: of flashy, glossy, Publication, but I, I I think we're coming up to the point where people understand the value of that intercommunication in a community. And we, we will again come to the point where we, we will support people will be willing to support that at some level. So so you know, there's been a kind of a turn back to subscriber-supported publications, like we had at the Whole Earth Catalogs. I mean, so Coevolution Crowley was a quarterly magazine that had no advertising we had 150 pages an issue all content really great content no ads and so um i think we're coming back to that and you know, all the paywalls going up there'll be some combination of freemen some articles half the articles whatever it is whatever but i think that moment when everything had to be free or wasn't going to be used i think that was a temporary thing and, and um, communities will come to see whether it's through dues or some way in which you are supporting the community that that part of that support goes to that intercommunication. And now, now the question is, well, you know I think we should always make a distinguish about making a fortune versus making a living or making a living versus making a fortune. The problem is is right now with startups and all kinds of stuff, people have this thing that the only viable business is one that scales up exponentially and has this huge hyper growth. Yeah. That's making a fortune. There are certainly, that's a role and there are certainly things that that's good for. But there are so many other things that we neglect or give praise to or honor that are just going to make someone a living. and They're never going to scale up. And some of these kind of publications are, you know, they're going to remain small. They're going to be small. But we shouldn't expect them ever to to grow, and we should understand that they're going to remain a kind of a lifestyle support, lifestyle business for somebody, and that's it. But that's, we want to get to the point where we can honor that again rather than expecting that they have to keep growing.
0: Well, I think that, to me, that stuff's always been more interesting. The things that have... Been the most valuable to me in life have been niche of a right, kind right. and in a way it's made me a lot less inter. i'm less interested in the startup era of technology right, right. than i was in the era before um because the only things that can get that big are by definition a little bit boring yeah, to me right. and you can see it i've talked to a lot of people yeah. who are technology reporters on this right. show about um technology has become a business story yeah um, even a Wired magazine itself—it's right, right. not particularly about people tinkering and right, right, and right. experimenting with technology. It's largely about the fates of giant technology companies right, right. and guessing which smaller technology companies will become <laughs> oh, those giant yeah. technology companies. Was there a point where you saw in in running Wired? Yeah. Oh, the we're turning a corner here. This isn't the same thing it was when I realized that modems were cool. Yeah,
1: it happened a little bit. After I left, uh, I was only there for the first seven and a half years, and, and the way I would describe it is, you know, Wired in the beginning was a pirate ship, and then it became a flagship. It was kind of the, the rebellious, outlaw, renegade, maverick, you know, hoisting the flag for this revolution that was coming, and then the revolution came, and then it wanted to transition to being the expert the, you know, we, we're the official voice, we're the house organ. And that's a very different kind of stance. And I miss the, you know, the maverick, renegade, outlaw aspect of it. And the editor, the current editor is a little bit more on the, you know, the flagship um, side of it. And so, um, yeah, if I was running it, I would definitely return to the more outlaw, renegade, hacker you know, the revolutionary aspect of it. And Lewis, too, was a revolutionary contrarian at heart. And so, um, but then again, um, you know, it's owned by Condé Nast, and they are not, Condé Nast is not a revolutionary organization. They're interested in becoming
0: the flagship. Well, and, and additionally, your vision of it might be, again, the thirty or 40,000 yeah. right people. Right, right. And the mandate is to reach the most people right, possible. Right, right. There's no way that those two visions could possibly be this the same vision? There's n- right, there's no yeah. way that Connie Nass will be like we're just we're just going for the right thirty thousand right. <laughs> people this time. Um, so in your own work, you left yeah. Wired ninety uh, nine, yeah, ninety two thousand, yeah. Uh-huh. Where do you go from there? Like you've been part of this thing that is big, yeah,
1: yeah. So so I actually took a, my first sabbatical from Whole Earth um, because I I the first scientific conference I ever attended was the Artificial Life Conference in Los Alamos. And that was transformative in many ways because they were talking about this new way of seeing the world where computational and biology were kind of like together. They were merged. They were blurred. So I st- I was posting uh, live blogging, basically the conference, at what we would call now, onto the well. And I got a tremendous reception But people wanted to hear more. So I made a book proposal for my first book. And I took a sabbatical from, from Whole Earth to write that, and before I finished the book, which took way too long, Wired came along. So instead of returning to Whole Earth, I jump shipped to Wired. But I still hadn't finished my book. And then I took a sabbatical at Wired to finish my book after uh, the first three or four issues. And um, I got into writing books. I did an article for Wired called The New Rules for the New Economy, and there was such a great reception that I decided to make a short book on that. So by the time Wired, I left Wired, I had a couple of books under my belt, and I uh, found that there was a market for people talking about technology. So I had a speaker agent, and the dirty secret in publishing, at least in the kind of publishing that I know about nonfiction, is that... Nonfiction books don't really make very much money. The money is in speaking. And so after Wire, basically my income became more and more on talks and the books become advertisements for the talks. That's the economics of it. And then I had the luck of having my book translated in Chinese at some point and that became a really big part of my, my livelihood. So I had the uh, opportunity to spend a lot of time reading, talking, and then writing. And I could take the time to try and take the long-term view, think a little bit more about what's really happening, do some more historical research on those kinds of long-term trends. And so my job shifted a little bit more from editing all the time, which I think I'm a natural editor, to writing, which I'm not a natural writer. I have to try a little much harder to do that. Uh, It's painful for me. It's a way of thinking. And so, um, I have probably written more than I have when I was editing. I don't have time to really write when I'm editing.
0: Was it difficult? I mean, when I'm thinking about the years from, say, the founding of Wired to the present, anytime you stop and try and write a book and don't go really fast, the book could potentially be dated the day it comes out or... Right, right,
1: right. So, So, my books, I always try to write about the future and it became harder and harder because things would catch up so fast. Yeah. Like... You know, if you read Out of Control now, I've heard that people say, "Well, this is obvious." <laughs> I have to tell you that it was dismissed as t- entirely pie in the sky, you know, wild-eyed craziness when it, twenty-five years ago um, the new rules, which I wrote in '98 or so, you know, again, you read them now. Follow the free, all, all this kind of stuff. It seems orthodox now. It's completely conventional what technology wants. So each time I wrote a book, I was like trying even harder to kind of push it to the point where it would make sense in 20 years from now. It won't be as revolutionary as it was when it came out, but I can't help that. So um, it is really hard to to stay ahead of how fast. And, and in some ways, I should really aim to like 100 years so that in 20 years, it would
0: still be revolutionary. I don't know how to do that yet. What do you do when you're not trying to get caught in the two or three years you're in and you're trying to think in the 20-year span? What are the pitfalls of the moment?
1: Well, you know, the the, the really truth is that um, I I think general shapes of the general course of the River Valley we can talk about and maybe even predict on a 20-year, but the specifics are just inherently stochastic and un- unpredictable and you know, specifics like you know what company or what product is going to work and stuff. And so to really to really talk about it, there's a kind of a, a paradox of futurism, which is that um the paradox is that the future is likely to be kind of implausible to us now. But unless someone believes it, it's not really useful, it doesn't do anything. So you have to make it plausible enough to the present that people will pay attention. Yet that's unlikely to actually be the actual future. And so there is this dichotomy, this little tension between plausibility and actual likelihood. But we have to you have to come up with a scenario that's sort of plausible today and gets you halfway there. So that's one thing that we're playing around, you're always playing around with in the specific. So so the other thing that the more I think about the future, the more I become interested in history. And a lot of those books are there are books of history because I'm trying to take those long-term trends that have momentum that are going to continue. And Jeff Bezos often says, you know, he built Amazon on the principle of things that don't change rather than things that are always changing. And he says, what doesn't change is people want more selection and cheaper prices. He says, that's never going to change. Okay, so I'm going to build something that's based on that. And in a certain sense, what we're trying to do is look at what are those things that that do have a continuous momentum, a trajectory that that has deep roots that's going to continue. And if we can get enough trends that will continue, then that can kind of give us a little bit of a sense of where we're going.
0: For you, you're taking kind of a longer view right now. Uh I guess you're not thinking you're going to die within six months all the time um, anymore. No, actually,
1: I have a countdown clock.
0: Oh, you have a countdown? But I have only 6,800 days. Left. Left. So how do you decide how to spend those days and what to focus on? That's
1: such a great, great question that everybody should be asking. And um, so I had an epiphany working at WIRED. This isn't a total answer, but this is part of the answer. And the epiphany came when I was being editor at Wired, and more than half of the stories in Wired during our reign were articles that we commissioned. And the other third or came from submissions across the transom, freelancers who were pitching ideas. And um, there were often, I'd have a great idea, and I'm trying to find a writer to giving them an assignment, and I was having oftentimes no luck in selling this idea, even giving the idea away. And I would say, well, I guess it wasn't a very good idea. But then a year later, I would say, you know, I think this idea, I think we should do something with this. And I would try to sell it again and could get no takers. Nobody wanted it. And then maybe a third, come back a third time. And then I would realize, okay, I have to write this article. This is the piece that I need to write. I can't even give it away, but I really think it's good. And that would always—they would always turn out to be my best pieces. And my epiphany from that was that um, the reason why the pieces that I did at Wired that I tried to give away that I could not give away that I had to do was that I was the only one who could do those, and that's why they were—they the, were really good. And so I was doing the things. That only I could do and now I look at that lens and that's the lens I try to apply on doing things is like could anybody else do this this would be something I would love to do it'd be really fun I'd be really good at it I could get paid but somebody else could do that I want to do the things that only I can do because that's why I'm here that's the whole point That will be my best stuff. That leaves me with the projects that are kind of me. And I think that's really helps in trying to filter through some of the opportunities. Does that filter get narrower as you get older? That's a good question. I think probably it does because I think the challenge for this is that you have to come to understand what it is that you can only do. And it takes all your life to do that. And in fact, I think your life is really just that. It's the figuring out what it is that you can only do. And it it's going to take all your life to figure that out. And so as you get further along, you have more of an idea of what that is. And so that may kind of narrow that in that sense. But I think there's very few young people who have that kind of self-awareness. Occasionally there are people who are very clear about what it is. But for me, it's taking a long time, and I'm still on that journey of figuring out, well, what is it that I'm really good at? What is it that only I can do? And the answer is that the only way to figure that out is you can't think about that. You can only figure it out by doing things. And some of them are going to fail. Some will work better.
0: And each time you do something, you have a better idea of what it is that only you can do. Do you think that writing about computers and and that idea of wire, Mm -hmm. like you have to do it, kind of informs this worldview that you have? I, I I do. And in fact, I
1: even would extend this idea, this principle, um, against a fallacy called thinkism. Thinkism is an idea often propagated by middle-aged guys who like to think that they can figure out things by thinking about them. And we also have applied this to a little bit kind of like um, technology in general that, oh, people should have known that Social media was going to cause disinformation. No. You can't figure that out by thinking about it. The thing is is that we have to, that, that complex things like technology and all the things we're making with these technologies like artificial intelligence, we cannot figure out by thinking about them. We can only figure out through use, by using them. I, I'm a deep believer, and I've become a deep believer, that that engagement is the way of thinking about them. That engagement is how we decide what they are about. That engagement is how we actually steer them. That unless you engage with technology, you can't steer it. And and I would even expand that even further by suggesting that um, there is a famous dichotomy written by a guy, C.P. Snow, a um, century ago or so, Who talked about that there were kind of two factions in society. There was the humanities and there was science. And he said that these two were incompatible realms
0: and they never met two cultures. Never shall the twain be in a single major.
1: Right. And um, I think actually what's happened in the last 50 years is that there's been a third culture and this is what Brockman, my literary agent, calls, I've expanded his term, the third culture. I think there's a third culture, and it's not either the humanities or science. The third culture is tech. And the way of the humanities was to think about things, to explore the world through human expression, human intuition, interior reflection, to plumb the depths of humanity, by exploring what it can express and produce. And then there was science, and the way science explored the universe was through probing, experiments, trying, hypothesis, the scientific method. The third culture, which we've been involved in, the wire has been very much promoting, and we're in the midst of a global expansion of this third culture is the nerd culture. And the nerd culture, the way the nerd culture explores the universe is by making things. And so, the humanities would explore the human mind by by thinking about the human mind, telling stories about what the mind does, and, and looking at what the mind produces. And then the science would explore the mind by doing experiments on different kinds of minds and putting them in the lab and stuff. The way the nerds explore the mind is by making an artificial mind. It makes a mind makes many kinds of minds. It keeps making them again and again. It explores the world by making things. And that making is uh, the powerful tool. And it's by making them wrong, making them incorrectly, trying to make them better. But that making, that engagement, is the way that it actually explores the world. And so I'm part of that nerd third culture. This idea that we engage
0: as a way of thinking, of doing it, and exploring We're uh, on the outskirts of San Francisco here, Mm -hmm. so you're living in the Petri dish Mm -hmm. of that making Mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And as we speak, I would say there's kind of a a backlash, Mm -hmm. actually pretty much driven by the technology press that is the Mm -hmm. children and grandchildren of Wired Magazine Mm -hmm. against the shortcoming of making as an ethos right, unto right, itself right, 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 the right. facebook uh move quickly and break, break things, things right, which is right. basically a, a maker's ethos right, right, right. um as someone who's seen it mm-hmm. from infancy to middle age um how how does how does that feel and how do you regard the critics who, who are doing it from the standpoint of writing about technology which yeah, you know
1: yeah um yeah, I, I think it is misguided in a certain sense, and if I was at the helm, I, I wouldn't be. Um, I, I would be much more contrarian. Again, I, th- I think this is <laughs> this is sort of a good moment for another real wire to arise. Um, when wire arose in the '90s, it was still, you know, it was just at the tail end of the dot bust. People were very pessimistic. Um, it was not unlike right now. And so I think the time for optimism is now, and, and there would still be a market for it. Again, there might be only the thirty, forty thousand people rather than a million. <laughs> um, but I, I would, I would zig right now while the entire kind of tech industry is zagging. I think it's short termism. And, and by the way, I think this is a necessary, what I call a necessary correction. I think. I don't know, social media is, I don't know, 6,000 days old, maybe. Not even that. I don't know. It's very young. It's an infant. We have no idea what it's about. And it's going to take engagement. And so so now we're discovering some of the things we don't like about it, and we're going to correct those. That's To me, that's a necessary process. They tried. It didn't work. Let's try something different. Let's try something better. If a, If that technology is like an idea, if you have a bad idea, The solution to a bad idea is not to stop thinking. It's to have a better idea. The solution to technology that doesn't work is not to have less technology. It's to have better technology. And so what we want
0: to do is to make that correction. Do you have your next book? Like, Is the next thing you're going to write in your head right now?
1: Well, okay. So I'm finishing up this book on Asia, which I have 5,000 or more images in one book. These are still the same original negatives you shot well, in Asia and Those the- are some of them but a, mo- a more most of them are actually recent. I've been oh, okay. I've continued. I was just recently in Kazakhstan and Mongolia. I was back in the Burma. So I'm really focused on just getting this book which have very few words in it. It's mostly all pictures just a few little captions. But there is two things I've been thinking about and so, so I'm interested in the idea of a viable, desirable world government. And all my friends on the left think that, that's like that's like the worst thing. And all friends on the right think that's like the worst thing. And it's like, I think it's the only thing that's going to save us. And so I'm really interested in it because so many people think it's a really bad idea. And this is an idea like kind of giving it away and nobody else wants it, you know. And... I have no idea how wh- what this would look like logistically, how it would work, how you'd have a any kind of representative democracy with eight billion people. But I'm interested in this uh, idea of what would it look like, how would it work, um, et cetera. And also I'm participating in a workshop about the global superorganism, which is kind of part of this, that there's a level of, I mean, if someone said, well, Politically, I, I have no problem with it, but I'm concerned about it being becoming kind of a sentient being. That I find a little bit more interesting, and you know, it's kind of woo-woo. But but there there is a sense in which you we're making this kind of um, one machine, large-scale unity, holos by connecting all the parts and our minds together. That there's there certainly could be emergent phenomena happening if as we coalesce into. A planetary thing. And that's much harder to talk about. But I'm also interested in, in that aspect of it too. And if I wrote something, it might be along those lines. Thank you, Kevin Kelly. Oh, it's my pleasure, Aaron. You ask great questions, it's always a delight.
0: That's the long form podcast. Thanks to Kevin Kelly for hosting me in his lovely home. The Long Form Podcast is edited by Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Marina Clementi. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. We're brought to you by great people like MailChimp and Pit Writers. They make this show possible. I'll see you next week.